Counselor. Last time on Legacy Door. Hey, Counselor. Sorry to bug you, but you'll want to hear this. I don't know if you've seen what Corva Reese just said to the press, but it won't make your life any easier. And I've got information about her family. Lunch? Dinner? I promise to be on my best behavior. VD. Lunch. Same place, same time. Let's get this over with. Legacy Door, Episode 2.7, Reconsideration. Vanessa Dorn, 11.57 a.m. Parking Dan's rental car and taking a train downtown gave Vanessa an uncomfortable feeling. As with the key ring, she feared the car would disappear if she turned her back on it. But if she drove downtown, she'd have to figure out where to put it. It also made sense to keep Brant, and anybody keeping an eye on Brant, from seeing that she had it. She arrived a couple minutes earlier than last time, but he was still there ahead of her, standing on the sidewalk. Not doing his stretches this time, just stewing, and giving her the death stare. She began to accept that this might not be much fun, and banked the energy Corvarese's speech had evoked down to a low flame. Hello, she said, trying to sound friendly, but serious. Let's eat. I'm starving. They went in, made their orders, filled their trays, and walked, unspeaking, up to the second floor, with Brant notably paying for himself but not her. The booths were all taken this time, so Brant chose a small table by the big window. Vanessa's tactical sense approved. While the spot was extremely visible, it cut down potential neighbors by 50%. All right. He began as they sat, his eyes looking like they were ready to see anything. What do you have to say? Then he started eating. It bummed her that the nervous spark of their previous encounters was gone. She'd come to enjoy the eager law student act with its collegiality and semi-flirtations. But she reminded herself that she wasn't doing this for the fun of it. She took a breath and started her case. You said last time that Jonathan Strauss's attitude didn't make sense to you. He winced as he chewed and nodded. She could see that he hadn't realized how much he'd told her and that he regretted it now. She continued, I'm investigating something that involves his family and the Reeses, something that goes way back and reaches well beyond the murders. If you're interested in that, we'll have one kind of conversation. If you just want ammunition for his case, we'll have another. Brent took another bite and chewed for another moment. Then he swallowed, put his fork down, steepled his fingers, and rested his chin on the tips. Are you working for somebody? No, nobody. Then why are you doing this? This thing I'm investigating involves my family, too. He picked up his fork, took another bite, and processed what she'd said. Does your father know you're doing this? I've hidden it from him. I don't believe he's found out. This was a risk. If he asked her how long things would stay that way, she'd have to backpedal. If you had leveled with me yesterday... Uh-huh. I would have gone down those stairs with the intention of never going near you again. But now... Things have gotten strange. Strange how? Uh-uh. You're the one who's proving she's not a phony. I'm just deciding how deep into this I want to dive. Vanessa tried to be serene and let his distrust wash over her, knowing that the only real antidote was to be more trustworthy from this point forward. Brant took a breath and let out a sigh of frustration. Okay. First, the ammunition you mentioned, does it include evidence that my client might be innocent? Vanessa thought for a moment while maintaining eye contact, then said, No. All right, then. If I want the full story, how does the conversation begin? 
with a general outline, which gets filled in as needed, and as we come to trust each other, which means you have to agree to keep what I tell you confidential for now. Also, at some point, information has to flow both ways. Is that the option you're choosing? Brant took another bite of food, his eyes darting around. To customers at other tables, Vanessa thought, he probably came across like an intense young professional having a power lunch. But she saw a caged animal. Yes. My client has put me in a dangerous position, and I need to protect myself. But in consideration of whatever I tell you, you have to promise that if you ever get evidence that he didn't do it, you'll give it to me right away. Agreed. She didn't expect this to happen, but she hadn't expected a lot of things that were happening lately. All right. Let's hear the outline. Some of the Reeses and the Strausses have been involved with something that seems to include an obsession with bloodlines and longevity for at least decades. Some of my mother's family, the Lutchers, have been involved too. Harrison Reese and Abigail Strauss found out about it and then confronted Jonathan Strauss right before they died. She stopped to let him absorb and draw his own inferences. He did, chewing and swallowing with concentration. Are you telling me you have proof that he did it? Only circumstantial. He nodded approvingly. And how do you know that they confronted him on that day? Abby told me that she was going to. She said it the day before. You knew Abigail Strauss? Since we were kids. Brant closed his eyes and shook his head. Ah, Justin. He said. He opened his eyes again and looked at her. You pulled a pretty good number on me. It's nothing compared to what's been pulled on me. Brant raised his eyebrows, took a breath, and asked, So were Harrison and Abigail really involved with each other? Yes. Brant nodded, a trace of sadness crossing his face. And do you think they were killed to preserve the, I don't know, purity of the bloodlines or something like that? Vanessa frowned. Early on, she had thought the killings were a racist thing, as a lot of people did, but the things she'd learned put bloodline purity into a new context. Putting that together, she said, That might be a factor, but I don't think it was the proximate cause. Brant smiled grimly. I almost forgot that you're a law student. He leaned back and took on the Socratic tone of a professor. Okay, Ms. Dorn. What do you think was the proximate cause? To shut them up. So, in your scenario, they go in hot. They maybe threaten Strauss Sr. with exposure, and he... Well, they get silenced. Vanessa nodded, carefully noting how Brandt was not, even in a hypothetical, expressing the opinion that his client was a murderer. Good, she thought. He was more valuable to her if he was coming at this from his own angle. What else? No, you. You said something changed in the last day, and that's why you're doing this. What was it? His eyes darted around the room again. Then he pulled out his wallet and extracted a deep purple business card. He ran his hand along the back as if trying to feel something and then asked, Is your phone clean? She nodded quickly and pulled it out. Yes, I switched it a couple days ago and bought this for cash. Take a picture. She quickly did, noting the unfamiliar name Duncan Armory as she did so. Brant put the card away and said, That guy approached me this morning. Anything you can find out about him would be great. He wanted me to smuggle some kind of substance to Strauss tomorrow. It was worth six figures to him. 
Vanessa's eyes widened. This was a much bigger overt step than anything she'd expected. Then she narrowed her gaze, calculating. He didn't say what it was? He said something about holistic medicine. I'm not entirely sure I believe him. Honestly? There might be truth in that. The... the legacy people? I guess they're called the legatees? She laughed inwardly, but tried not to show it. Dan had heard the term in a dream, but she wouldn't be telling Brant that. Not for a while. They have some kind of obsession with alternative medicine? That might be how my dad got involved with them. Hmm. Why is that? He's dying, she answered, feeling much less emotion in saying that than in talking about Abby. Is that public knowledge? Not exactly. He was keeping it secret, but I think he's been letting it slip just in the last couple days. Maybe on purpose, I don't know. Brant laughed grimly. I looked both of you up on Saturday and didn't see anything about it. Guess I was too early. Vanessa half-smirked at the evidence that Brant really had been interested in her. If she played it better, she asked herself, and taken more risks, could she have gotten him under her thumb? She decided this was useless to think about. Where they were now seemed much better, with him as an intelligent collaborator rather than an unwitting pawn. As she finished processing this, he seemed to have done some processing of his own. Your dad made some kind of estate planning change recently, right? Vanessa blinked, startled by this evidence that Brant knew so much about her family. She decided the only safe course was still honesty. Yes. Does that have anything to do with you sneaking around behind his back? He was in full cross-examination mode now. Careful, she thought. Just the truth, but don't let him draw the wrong conclusion. It does have something to do with it, but I'm not doing this for money or because I'm mad that he's giving money to someone else. I'm doing it for Abby. And I started before I even knew about the new trust. Had to ask. It happens. Yeah, I know, she said, recalling friends whose grandparents used this or that bequest as a proxy for giving or receiving affection and the passive-aggressive ripples such behavior created through families. Brandt scanned around the room again, and when his eyes returned, he said, somewhat looser, So... Do you have a plan? Yes. In the short term, it's to talk to people of interest and get more clues about what's going on. That's why I went to Harrison's funeral. I would have gone to Abby's, but... And here Vanessa realized she had oversold their friendship, or at least the recent part of it. She finished with the half-confession. Well, I'm not as close with her family as I used to be. Can't help you there. I got a call from Strauss's son, Owen, yesterday, and he gave me a speech about how the family won't be attending the trial would prefer to have as little to do with it as possible, and that anything I wanted from them should go through him. Vanessa remembered Owen's nervous inexpressiveness during her own phone conversation. That doesn't sound like him. Justin nodded, approving of her observation. I'm pretty sure he was reading a written statement. He smirked at the memory. Probably from the lawyer who referred the case to me. It had his gift for making dramatic things sound dull. Anyway, Owen's not as good a speaker as Corva Reese, but he got the point across. Maybe I should try to see Corva. That's something you can't do in any kind of friendly way. She seems like she's in the right frame of mind to believe in a conspiracy. Justin knit his brows, thinking about something. Makes sense. She's your age, right? Yeah. Born just a couple months after me. Seems a lot more mature, though. Don't compare your inside to someone else's outside. You put on a pretty good show. I imagine she does too. Vanessa shrugged off the compliment. She was good at that. Wasn't Owen Strauss born about that same time? Yeah, right in between us. And then her brain made a connection and her heart sped up, 
And Dan was a month after Corva. Who's Dan? My cousin. My mother's brother's boy. She tried not to think about him, because as always, thinking about him made her crazy. But now she couldn't help it. She chided herself for letting all that happened between them happen. But she knew that what she really wanted was to see him again. You okay? I will be. I will be when I know the truth. Joyce Vera, 12.14 p.m. Joyce had slept for four hours, then been unable to stay asleep due to the hot sunlight flooding Jerry's bedroom, barely dimmed by his cheap window shade. So she peeled herself up to see if she could do better on the couch. Jerry, whose nocturnal painting had him on his own peculiar sleep schedule, was showering. The couch was unusually welcoming, although it had bothered her a little to be sweating all over it, especially since Dan had been so good about putting bedding down. Nevertheless, she might have remained paralyzed by comfort if a jarring noise hadn't shaken her up. It took her sleepy brain less than a second to identify the sound as the first guitar notes from Iron Butterfly's studio rendition of Inagata De Vida, but rather longer to isolate the sound as coming from Jerry's phone on the coffee table. She still heard the shower going, so she picked up the phone rather than shouting at him. The screen said, Gina. Joyce had a theory as to which Gina it was, but also thought that if it turned out to be a different Gina, it might be someone Joyce should be aware of. Jerry's phone, she greeted brightly. Why, hello there, said Dan's mom, her prime suspect. Is this Joyce again? Yeah. Have the boys made you their receptionist? Apparently. Well then, tell them they should pay you. It sounded more like practical advice than a joke. Hey, I'm staying here rent-free. Oh, pshaw. That's a separate transaction. Don't mix them up. If I think of all the times Dan's father puppy-dogged me into helping out with bookkeeping and payroll at the end of the month, after I'd already worked a long shift at the hospital... Well, anyway, I forgive him. He loved that restaurant. And Jerry loves painting. Just be careful about letting what they love get ahead of what you need to do. Okay, said Joyce, not really prepared for all of this wisdom but trying to take it in. At that moment, Jerry came out of the bathroom wearing a bronze-colored towel. Noticing her on his phone, he gave an exaggerated look of suspicion. But she eyed the phone to indicate it was something important and waved him toward his bedroom, whence he sauntered with a shrug. I'm... I'm still here, dear, said Gina, with a sadness that alarmed Joyce. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm listening. No, just had to steep for a minute about the past. I didn't want you to think I hung up. Oh, no, of course not. I'm glad that it's you, honey. I'd have talked to Jerry about this if I had to, but he's always put up a wall of jokes when I say something serious. Joyce nodded knowingly. About what, Gina? It's about Dan. I just got a call from him, and... Well, first, I was wondering, you saw him this morning when I called? Yes, said Joyce, casting her mind back to that fuzzy period. When he didn't answer the phone, I assumed he was washing his hands or something, but was he? No. Ah, well, <laughs> I do call him a lot. You know, when my mom and dad call me, I'm not always in the right frame of mind to... Oh, it's nothing, sweetie. Don't worry about that. Uh, how are they, by the way? Oh, they're good. I was just with them last week and everything seemed great. She thought about adding details, but knew this was all a tangent from Gina's real purpose. Oh, that's nice. I... 
Like I said, I got a call from Dan, and he said that that he would be going away for a while. On business for his Uncle Arthur, and, well, for one thing, it seemed sudden, and for another, he sounded a little off. So I was wondering if he might have told you anything he didn't tell me. Ah, well, he was just in and out this morning. I talked to you more than I did to him. He took his stuff, but he didn't say where he was going. I guess he seemed a little different, but... Well, that kind of made sense. (laughs) It was the first time I'd seen him since Sunday, and we had a little fight at the end of that. Oh no, you didn't have a good time at the party? Oh no, the party was great. Everyone was wonderful. Julia and Kevin were sweet, Arthur was charming, and I think Sandra was measuring me for a wedding gown. I was just a little sorry I missed Frank. Frank? Dan's, uh, uncle? Your brother-in-law? Do I have the name wrong? No, you don't. Frank was at the party? Well, he wasn't partying. He had some kind of business meeting with Arthur and Dan. Dan was a little stirred up when he came out of it, and we fought about something mostly unrelated. Nothing earth-shaking. And then it just fell out that we didn't see each other again until this morning. Dan didn't stay there last night? No, not for a minute. Jerry didn't see him, and I... I was up all night. You should get your rest. Gina, what's wrong? Oh, it's probably nothing. It's just... Well, there's a lot of baggage in that family. Frank dove into it, but Tom and Therese tried to get as far away from it as they could, and, well, from here... It feels like it caught up with them in the end. And Arthur was, well... But sometimes that's just the way things seem. If you're looking for a thing, you'll see it. I should blame Tom's restaurant for what happened to him more than his family, but either way, if you love someone, it doesn't pay to hate what they love. I'll remember that. Oh, it's just me being a fortune cookie. But goodness, I wish Tom was here so I could talk to him about it. Gina, do you want me to come over? Oh, no, dear, it's not necessary. Forget necessary, said Joyce, just barely substituting forget for another word starting with F. I want to. Well, that's very sweet, but my shift starts in 40 minutes, so I should get ready. Rain check? Sure, I'll text you. That way you'll have my number and won't have to keep calling the boys. Oh, well, if you like. But if you change your mind, I'll understand. I won't. Dan has me interested. He prepped me with the stories about you guys, and the pantry, and Vanessa. Huh? What does Vanessa have to do with anything? Oh, said Joyce, belatedly realizing how close she'd come to spilling decade-old beans. She looked forward to finally confirming for Dan that his mother knew nothing about his interrupted tryst. In the meantime, she half-truthed, He told me how they fought all the time. Did they ever? (laughs) Like oil and water, those two. Was she at the party? Yeah, we didn't talk much. She looked pretty stormy. Ah, well, that's just her. Don't take it personally. She must have had a hard childhood, poor thing. Vanessa Dorn, 12.39pm By the end of lunch, Vanessa and Justin had formed a tentative partnership though Brant was still keeping her at emotional arm's length. She did not blame him for that. They parted with much information exchanged, much remaining to exchange, 
and an understanding that they would talk again the next morning at a more secluded location. At that point, he would listen to her input about whether he should deliver or not deliver the notebook to Strauss. She imparted a picture of the conspiracy that included no supernatural elements. She disclosed that Dan was an informant as well as her cousin, and that he'd been acting strangely, but did not mention the sex or the dreams. Brandt hadn't reacted much, but Vanessa assumed his intense perceptiveness might have filled in some gaps. He, for his part, described Duncan Armory so that Vanessa would know him if they crossed paths. And he gave more details of his interactions with Jonathan Strauss. Vanessa valued these glimpses into the dramatic world where the legatees and their associates operated, and could see her dad and Uncle Frank fitting right into it. Better, in fact, than they fit into mundane reality. Like all the best conspiracy theories, it made the world she lived in seem more logical. Leaving the restaurant, she felt a little empty. Even if things weren't as friendly between her and Brandt as at those early meetings, he'd at least been company. Plus, she'd run out of obvious, definable things to react to, so she now had to take steps of her own in a world of difficult options. She crossed Michigan Avenue, found a park bench, and pulled out her tablet. First, not having heard anything from Julia about Kevin, she sent a message to him directly, just in case he might respond to her, but not to Julia. He and Julia were closer, but Vanessa knew that could bring friction, and if he was up to something Julia would tease him about, or disapprove of, or which he wanted to protect her from, he might confide in Vanessa. There was no immediate response. Then she did some research on Corva Reese, who had gotten an MBA the previous year from University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, the big, blocky, modern building in Hyde Park where the Nobel Prizes went. Her undergrad had been at Oberlin, and before that, something called the Hall School in Kingsport, Massachusetts. Vanessa couldn't find a LinkedIn page or social media presence for her, and the internet didn't seem to know where she was currently working. With progress slowing, Vanessa took a detour to look more closely at Harrison's socials. There wasn't much in public. Abby was the only mutual friend listed. Vanessa had already seen the event photos, and the rest of the images were him tagged in friends' public pictures, mostly on vacation in the Dominican Republic and New Orleans. Not much to take away, except a smile that combined Corva's confidence with Dan's sweetness. He'd gotten the best of both families. Abby had been a lucky girl, she thought but the warm thought chilled as she realized how short the interval must have been between them getting together and her father shooting them to death. Shaking off this alternately sentimental and morbid line of thinking, Vanessa tried to turn a more objective eye on Corva. The latest news articles on her were only slightly polished versions of the ones after her speech. It didn't seem like anyone was digging much deeper. Granted, it had only been a few hours. Could be there were reporters looking into things Vanessa wanted to know, who wouldn't publish their stories for hours or days. She resolved to do a mental tally of friends who'd gone into journalism. Of course, one occurred to her immediately. Dan. He seemed to be everywhere she turned. She was on the verge of wrenching her mind away from him again when it occurred to her that at this point, she should be including him on her list of persons of interest. At the start of this, she treated him as a potential source of information about her father but not as someone who had lived his life as close to the conspiracy as she had, who might have seen things over the years that she'd missed, and who now might have been brought into new secrets. Even if he was no longer a partner, he was still a witness. 
Dan's socials were public, so she found a gusher of doubtfully relevant information, the opposite problem of cyberstalking the Reese's. She scanned through posts featuring his pop culture opinions, links to articles he'd written, photos of movie tickets, and, back a little further, lots of pictures of Brenda Rio, an indie rock singer he seemed obsessed with. Wait, no, she corrected herself, a rock singer he knew. There they were, together at a party, her in denim jacket and multiple necklaces, him in flannel, heads resting on each other, which gave Vanessa an unwelcome twinge. And she now remembered him saying that his ex's name was Brenda. And there was a three-shot from a year ago of Brenda in the middle, flanked by Dan, pulling on one of her arms, and another girl, the other, playfully tug-of-warring over the singer. A tag identified the other girl as Joyce Vera. Vanessa wouldn't have recognized her without it. With riot girl clothes, multiple piercings, hair black and shaved off on the sides, she gave a very different impression from the socially acceptable bohemianism she'd brought to Lake Forest. Vanessa stopped flipping and carefully considered Joyce. Ven had dismissed her earlier, believing Dan's assertion that there was nothing between them, and figuring that Joyce wouldn't know anything about the legacy mystery except whatever she heard from Dan. But she now saw that as old thinking, from when Dan was Vanessa's partner in all this. Now that he was a subject, Joyce was a potential witness with information about him. So was his mother, Gina, and this singer, Brenda. If she was going to look into Dan, she resolved to be disciplined, make it clear, most of all to herself, what exactly she wanted regarding him and why. Of course, unlike with so many people in this, she had his phone number. But even when they'd been communicating, he'd urged her not to use it. So, should she send a message through their Wee Babble game? She weighed the wisdom of doing that. Pro. 1. If he'd just gotten cold feet, and hearing from her brought him back, it would vastly simplify and improve her situation on every front. 2. If Vanessa was a normal person with no agenda, trying to get in touch with him was a logical move, possibly more natural than not doing so. It might allay any suspicion that she was on to him. 3. Even if it didn't bring him back, it might give her additional data. Con. 1. She didn't wanna. Being the first to reach out would show weakness to someone who had hurt her. That note still stung. And so did her jaw. And she didn't want a repeat or escalation of either experience. 2. If he was being held somewhere and someone else was monitoring his phone, she might be compromising a secret channel of communication. But on the other hand, if she never used it, what good was it? 3. He might not know about Wee Babble. That last thought had popped into her head, unbidden, and she immediately interrogated it. Question, how could he possibly not know about it? Answer, the same way he didn't know about his rental car, jacket, laptop, and messenger bag. Question, and how was that? Answer, maybe, maybe he was in some sort of fugue state, sleepwalking, or dreaming. His dreams had been very powerful, and in them he'd been other people. Maybe, maybe he never woke up, and someone else was dreaming they were him. Vanessa looked around the downtown park nervously. A fairly diverse set of people, tourists, office workers, vendors, and among them the homeless they habitually ignored, the thing they all had in common was that they weren't paying her the slightest attention. She felt reassured and put her mind back into sorting impossible things by level of impossibility. 
Dan had been very specific that when he was dreaming, he was someone else. He was not controlling their actions. He felt like it was him doing it, and his mind rolled with it, but it had been Harrison, not him, who had reassured Abby and greeted her father, and it had been Frank, not him, that had talked to Julia and the masked woman. If someone else was doing the reverse, Dan himself should still be in the proverbial driver's seat. Maybe Dan left because he realized someone else was looking through his eyes, and so he didn't want those eyes to betray Vanessa. She remembered him, saying that he'd seen their teenage makeout session from Frank's point of view. If Frank reversed the trick, he could have seen a lot more. A shiver started at her arms and spread all over her. She wouldn't want to see her own O face, let alone have her creepy uncle watch it happen. Her stomach was fluttering. I have to concentrate, she thought. Specific goals. Justice for Harrison and Abby. Dan's status. Whether or not to send him a message. No, she decided. She would not send one. Not that way, anyway, and not yet. The upside was too narrow, the downside too wide. Maybe she'd sent him a text from her regular number if nothing else panned out. Something innocuous. But his forgetfulness, or whatever it was, seemed to be working in her favor. Possibly the only thing that was hiding her from them. She should leave it be. In that case, what was the next step? If she was going to inquire about Dan without talking to him directly, there was Brenda, Joyce, and his mother Gina. The latter two had the advantage that Vanessa had met them before. Gina had the disadvantage that anything pointed Vanessa said might trigger maternal worry, which could have unpredictable effects. Best, Vanessa decided, to be very careful and selective about talking to her. Joyce. Vanessa's impression of her hadn't been great. She seemed capricious, and at the party had triggered negative emotions, somewhere between being resentful that Dan had someone and jealous that someone had Dan. But those feelings, always unworthy, had also proven thoroughly misplaced, and Joyce now seemed like the best prospect. Plus, Julia liked her, and Vanessa trusted Julia's opinion of people more than her own. Vanessa sent Julia a text asking if she had contact info for that girl Dan was with at the party. If Julia's memory needed more jogging than that, Vanessa expected the answer to be no. She was trying to figure out the next thing to do when Julia shot back with a phone number, plus, Here you go. Are you going to model for her? That would be awesome sauce. Vanessa smiled, glad she hadn't lied up a pretext. The one Julia suggested sounded perfect. And if modeling for the sculptress promised info, would she do it? Of course. And the friend tangle that Vanessa had already called incestuous would get a little more so. You have been listening to Legacy Door, episode 2.7, Reconsideration. Stacy Tappan was Vanessa Dorn. John Dre was Justin Brandt. Michelle Limon was Joyce Vera. Song Marshall was Gina Lutcher. Teresa Echeveste was Julia Dorn and Jamie Gosling narrated. The opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. The closing music is Alone at Night by Melancholic Bird. You can hear more from both of them on Toontech. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana and Ash. This episode's cover image is Room with Tables and Chairs by Mingrui Han. You can find more of their images on Unsplash. And so... Having found that there's more going on than they suspected, and having a shortage of trustworthy allies, all our characters are going to have to think about what to tell to whom in our next episode, Tension. 
And if you're suffering tension from keeping the various families straight, you might benefit from the family trees and resources on our website, LegacyDoor.wordpress.com, or posting your question or comment on Twitter, Blue Sky, Mastodon, or Facebook. Or you could get the entire novel from Amazon or as an audiobook at Audible, among other places. This also helps support us, as do reviews and mentions. This is one of the fine podcasts presented by Dueling Genre Productions. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester, all rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester. Thanks for listening.